And we're reading from Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 to 32. If you'd like to follow along, but I'll read it for you now. Okay, Genesis 32, 22 to 32. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. I do have a bit of a tendency to wander around when I speak, so... I'll just make sure I don't go too far forward. Thank you for uh, your warm welcome, Sophie. Um, and thank you for kind of raising everyone's expectations <laughs> really, really high. I used to have a line manager who would do that. And by the time I actually got to the stage to speak, I thought, man, this can only go one, da- one way from here. <laughs> everyone's got really high expectations. But uh, thank you for having me here. I'm very appreciative to be here for all kinds um, of different reasons. It's great to see some of my students uh, in ministry, in church. It's great to bump into a couple of old uh, friends and faces. Um, And it's even especially special today because my home church is holding their AGM. And so (laughs) this is a wonderful excuse for me uh, not to have to go along to my home church's um, AGM. Okay. Just trying to find places to put everything at the moment. I'll leave that one there. Okay, so I understand from Sophie that you're working through the book of Genesis, uh, looking at some of the key characters that appear in the narrative and what they can kind of tell us about um, the life of faith. And I understand that last week Sophie was working through uh, the story of Isaac. And even though I'm sure Sophie did such a wonderful job that I don't need to go back over it, um, I thought I'd just quickly touch base with the Isaac narrative just to set the context for what we've got to talk about today. Because to understand what happens in Jacob's story, you've got to, go to understand what happens in Abraham's story and also Isaac's story um, as well. Okay, so... Let's go with the first slide, and I'll put up the family tree there just so you can kind of keep track of who's who in this story. Okay. So after years of waiting and hoping, Abraham's wife, Sarah, gives birth to Isaac. And at this point, Sarah was the sprightly old age of 90, and Abraham was 100. Okay. Now, Isaac grows up, and probably the most significant event that we learn about in his childhood is his almost sacrifice at the hand of his father, Abraham, 
which we find recorded in Genesis 22. Now, following the death of his mother, Isaac marries Rebekah. Okay? And Rebekah is initially barren, but eventually she gives birth to twin sons who are Jacob and Esau. Okay. Now, Jacob is a trickster by name and by nature. And he basically steals his brother's birthright for the price of a bowl of stew. And he deceives his father Isaac into thinking that he is Esau. And out of that, he steals his brother's blessing. Now, Esau is quite a hot-headed man. And when he hears about what's happened, he's understandably a little bit angry. And he actually gets to the point where he plots to kill his brother. And then when news of this reaches their mother, she counsels Jacob to flee. And he goes to live with his uncle, a guy called Laban, in a place known as Haran. There he marries two of his cousins. Okay, <laughs> we got that. Okay, two of his cousins. Anyway, that's how they did things in the ancient world. I can explain why later on. Uh, but there he marries two of his cousins, Rachel and Leah. He becomes wealthy, uh, but again, he is forced to flee a second time. Remember, he's already had to flee Esau. Now he has to flee for his life a second time because his other cousins are kind of come, become jealous of the fortunes that he has um, amassed. And so out of fear, he's got nowhere else to go, so he heads back home. But the only problem is there's someone waiting for him back home. Who's that? Esau. Okay? And he's really deeply concerned about the reception that he's going to receive from his brother Esau. And along the way, he needs to cross the river Jabbok. And the events that take place with the crossing of that river are recorded in Genesis 32. Okay, we cool with that? That's our context, okay? And if you have got your Bibles in front of you or your phones with you, I'd encourage you to get them out because we will be referring to them um, as we go along. Okay, so what does the story of Genesis 32 reveal about the life of faith? Now, I hope that the first thing that struck you when you heard the story of Genesis 32 is that the life of faith is not meant to be a serene and peaceful life. Go with the next slide. Genesis 32 suggests that the life of faith is a life of struggle and conflict. Now, in the story of Jacob... This struggle or conflict kind of occurs in two dimensions or along two different axes. The first is that he struggles with God. Okay? And the dominant image or metaphor of faith that this chapter provides us with is wrestling with God. Okay? Let's read through the text again. Genesis 32, verses 22 to 25. The same night he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his eleven children. 
and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And one of the commentators I was reading suggested that striking in the hip socket is really important. I don't have any experience of wrestling, but apparently that's the wrestler's pivot point, And it's kind of their point of strength. It's allowed them to kind of defeat um, their opponent. So he strikes him in the hip in this middle of this wrestling match that these two people are having. And this wrestling with God actually lasts a long time. They meet during the night... And then we read in verse 26, Then he said, Let me go, for the day is breaking. These two men have been wrestling all night. Now, wrestling with God is actually quite a common dynamic that we find in the Old Testament. We see Job wrestle with God. We see the psalmists wrestle with God. With God. We see Jonah wrestle with God. This notion of wrestling with God is not the sign of a lack of faith, it's actually the sign of a profound and deeply engaged faith. Marriages stay alive today because people are willing to wrestle with each other. Okay? I've been married now for 18 years, 18 years of beautiful (laughs) peace and harmony, some of it, but there's also been times of disagreement and conflict. How have we stuck together? Through wrestling, through those issues. We may not agree with each other, but we're willing to talk, we're willing to work it through. Marriages, on the other hand, fall apart for all different kinds of reasons. Okay? But one of the reasons, one of the factors that sometimes is at play, it's as a consequence of people actually giving up the fight, of throwing in the towel, of refusing to talk and wrestle anymore. Wrestling with God is a sign of a profound and deeply engaged faith. The life of faith is a life of wrestling with God. So that's the first thing I think this narrative shows us. What does the life of faith look like? Well, part of it looks like a life of wrestling with God. What else does it suggest? It also suggests that the life of faith is a life of wrestling with other human beings. Okay, I think we can go to the next slide, maybe. I was glad to see the Lego picture on your screen beforehand. <laughs> Now, there is an interesting ambiguity within this passage, Genesis 32. With whom does Jacob wrestle? Okay. With whom does Jacob wrestle? Now, I've already suggested that he wrestles with God. And that certainly seems to be the realisation of Jacob by the time he gets to the end of the narrative. If we look in verse 30... So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life 
is preserved. Okay? So he's wrestling with God. But it's not clear from the outset of the narrative that this is who he's wrestling with. If we look earlier in the story, verses 24 to 25, Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So is it God or is it a man? And verse 25 is fascinating because if it's God we're dealing with here, verse 25, the first part, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, this is suggesting that Jacob is a pretty awesome wrestler. He's kind of almost brought God into submission at this point. So whom is Jacob wrestling with? A man or God? And the answer, if you look at the Jacob narrative of a whole, is that he actually wrestles with both. He wrestles man and God. If you have a look in verse 28, Then the man said, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Jacob's life is a story of wrestling, a story of struggle. He struggles right from the outset with his brother. Okay? We know the story of Jacob and Esau. I hope we know the story of Jacob and Esau. I actually asked my children this morning to test them. Do they know the story of Jacob and Esau? And yes, they know the story of Jacob and Esau. Okay, everyone knows how he steals the birthright and the blessing. But that's actually just one part of a long history of struggle, of wrestling between these two brothers. These brothers were wrestling before they were even born. Okay, if you have a look back in Genesis 25, verses 21 to 22. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren and the Lord granted his prayer and his wife Rebekah conceived. The children struggled together within her. These brothers are at it before they're even born, wrestling. And she said, if it is to be this way, why do I live? Anyone here the mother of twins? <laughs> My wife is the mother of twins. I reckon this must be a universal prayer for all mothers of twins. Okay? If it is to be this way, why do I live? Okay? I, should have, I wasn't actually going to bring... But there's a picture of my wife who's about 36 weeks pregnant. And I can just see the look on her face at that point. You know, If it is to be this way, why do I live? Okay? Jacob and Esau wrestling with each other here in the womb. And their struggle continues through even during the very act of birth. Okay? They're wrestling in the room and it continues even through the act of birth. Verses 24 to 26. When her time to give birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy mantle. So they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand gripping Esau's heel. Can't let go of him. They're still fighting each other. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old 
when she bore him. Jacob's name literally means one who grasps the heel. This guy is a wrestler, both in name and nature. Jacob is, by definition, a man of struggles. That's what his name means. Now, this image of wrestling or struggling with God and fellow human beings stands in contrast to two other common images of what faith looks like in the world around us today. The first, I think, is an image of faith that exists within the church. If we go to the next slide, that would be good. Actually, jump across to the next one. These are two other images of faith in the world around us. The first essentially suggests that faith is an intellectual activity. Okay, That faith essentially involves agreeing to certain theological truths. How do I know that you're a person of faith? Because you say that you believe in Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that you assert certain theological truths, that you believe certain things. Okay? That makes you a person of faith. Okay? Now, there's not that this is necessarily wrong, and maybe I shouldn't critique it too much, because after all, I teach in a theological institution, <laughs> and we do make quite a bit about the intellectual aspect of faith. Um, but it's certainly a very incomplete version that faith is simply a, kind of agreeing to certain theological truths. It's something that the New Testament authors themselves pick up and critique. James, his famous letter... If you've got a quick look there, but James 2, 18 to 19. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I, by my works, will show you my faith. You believe that God is one, you do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. There's got to be more to faith than simply believing certain truths. How do you know if someone has faith according to James? It's not simply by what they say they believe. It's actually by how they live their lives. I'm going to drop a truth bomb on you now and I'm prepared to unpack it afterwards if we need to. But the New Testament authors, all of them, assert that you're going to be judged on one basis. Okay? Now, what is that basis, you may be asking? Is it that I've believed? Is it that Jesus has died for my sins? Yes. Is it by grace? Yes. Okay. You're going to be judged on one basis. Okay. And the New Testament authors assert in each section that the basis for your judgment is your works, what you have done. Okay. Now, please hear me clearly. This does not mean that you are saved by your works. Okay? You are saved by grace through faith. But how is God going to assess your faith? It's not by what you've said. It's by what you've done. Okay? You're going to be judged on the basis of your works. How do you know that you believe in Jesus? It's not by what you've said. Not simply by what you've said. It's actually by how you've lived your life. It's a life of struggle with God. Now, 
I'll unpack that afterwards if you want. If you want to write letters of complaint, I'll give you my email address. <laughs> That's fine. Okay, the second image of faith that kind of exists in the world around us kind of exists more outside of the church. It's associated with this guy. If we go back a slide, who are we dealing with there? Anyone know off the top of their heads? Not Tolkien. I'll get to Tolkien in a second, though. This is Karl Marx, okay? And Marx is famously known for a number of different things, but one of his is a quote that religion is the opiate of the masses, okay? And what he basically means by that is that religion functions in a way similar to what you would give someone in, I think, the 19th century when you'd give them opium, okay? That basically religion does a similar thing. It reduces people's suffering, okay? And it provides them with pleasant illusions in the face of the struggles and the vicissitudes of life. The life of faith doesn't take you away from your struggles. It doesn't help you avoid them. In fact, it often propels you into struggles with other people. Sometimes this may be struggles within your own family, as it was in the case of Jacob. I know you're all sick and tired of the politics by now, but... Who would have guessed, anyway, if it would be sitting here this morning? I don't want to bang on about it too much, but can I let you know, family first is not a biblical concept. Okay? Um, Jesus actually comes to set father against son, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. What's the priority for Jesus? The kingdom of God. That's what comes first. Family comes second. And if you prioritise the kingdom of God, it may well lead to struggles in other areas, struggles potentially with your family. Sometimes it might lead to struggles in the broader world, struggles with other people within the church, struggles with people outside of the church. I mean, we can all kind of see what's happening in the media at the moment with the whole Israel Falau situation and um, the consequences of that. So the life of Jacob suggests that the life of faith is going to involve some wrestling and some struggling. But if we return to the text, we see that this wrestling has three important consequences for Jacob and potentially for us as well. Genesis 32, verses 26 to 29. If you want to go to the next slide... The first consequence of this wrestling for Jacob is blessing. Then he said, let me go for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So the first consequence of this wrestling is that Jacob is blessed out of this activity. It's not something that God condemns. He actually blesses Jacob out of his wrestling. The second, is, second consequence is transformation. It's out of this wrestling that God changes Jacob's name 
32 verse 28. Then the man said, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. The man Jacob is not the same after the fight as he was before. He's been transformed. Now, so far, the key image that I've been using to talk about the life of faith in the story of Jacob is wrestling or struggle. There's another key image that we get in Jacob's story. And this is the image of a journey. Okay? Now, Jacob's life is really the story of two journeys. Okay? It's a journey where he goes to his uncle, gets married, grows rich, and then returns. And there's also a journey at the end of his life where he goes down to Egypt to be reunited with his son, Joseph. Okay? Who here has seen the Lord of the Rings movies? Okay. Has anyone seen them recently? Have you seen Return of the King recently at all? Okay. One of the things people talked about when they saw the Return of the King movie for the first time was the number of endings that that movie had. I don't know if you can remember it, but there'd be a couple of times where the movie would fade to black and everyone would think, okay, this is it. And then the, movie, the lights would come back up, the music would restart, and there'd be another story and another conclusion to the narrative. And I think I remember reading somewhere that Jack Nicholson was catching up with Elijah Wood, who was the guy who played Frodo um, in one of the, in, in the movies. And apparently Jack Nicholson actually walked out of the movies uh, before it had finished because he went to go and warm up his car for his family. <laughs> and his comment was to, uh, to Elijah Wood, and I can't, I can't do it properly, I can't do a good Jack, Jack Nicholson um, impersonation, but it was along the lines of, too many endings, man. <laughs> So it had a lot of endings to that movie. But it made sense because it actually had to bring together a whole lot of different narrative threads. Now, the key narrative thread for The Lord of the Rings is the story of Frodo, okay? The ring bearer. And can you remember how Frodo's story ends? In a fairy tale... We would expect that after throwing the ring of power into Mount Doom, there'd be a celebration, of course, that's what happens. And then, after a while, Frodo would make the trip back home to the Shire, and there he would live happily ever after. Okay? That's how fairy tales work, isn't it? But is this how Frodo's story ends? No. Because Tolkien wasn't writing a fairy tale. Frodo returns to the Shire, but he's actually unable to return to his normal life. The journey he's been on has changed him. He's been transformed. He's a different hobbit from when he left the Shire. So he can't go back to life as normal because he no longer fits. And so he, instead he packs up his bag, he leaves and he sails away from the grey havens. His journey 
has left him a transformed individual. Likewise, the story of Jacob suggests that when we go on journeys, when we wrestle with God, we'd better be prepared to be transformed because that's the kind of God we worship. Final slide. The final consequence of Jacob's wrestling is woundedness. Okay. Now, I am the eldest of three brothers. I am the father of four children. I know that there are consequences when you engage in wrestling. <laughs> what do we constantly tell, tell our children? Stop doing that because somebody's going to get hurt. Okay, And that's precisely what happens in this wrestling match. Jacob walks away with a limp. Genesis 32, verses 30 to 31. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. There is a cost that Jacob pays for wrestling with God and man. And this shouldn't surprise us that the life of faith often involves some degree of woundedness. We follow in the footsteps of a limping and crucified Messiah, a Messiah who still today in heaven bears the scars in his hands and feet of his crucifixion. Woundedness as part and parcel of the life of faith shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't also surprise us if we know our church history. In the first four centuries of the church, there was a number of important gatherings where church leaders from all the Roman Empire would gather together to discuss doctrine. Okay? And they took these things very seriously. In fact, the decisions they made really shaped the faith that we profess today. We refer to these gatherings as the great church councils. Okay? Now, perhaps the most important council of all took place, I think it's in a small town in Turkey known as Nicaea in 318 AD. And the major d debate here was about the nature of Christ. And you probably know someone who probably went along to this uh, council. It was a guy named St. Nicholas, okay, from who we get Santa Claus, okay? And there is actually this story about St. Nicholas that at one point he got so agitated with what someone else was saying that he got up from his chair, walked across the room and slapped the other guy in the face. So if you want to... St. Nicholas was a beast. Okay. Okay. Now, something like 318 delegates attended the council. Okay? 318 
attended the council. Of those 318, fewer than 12 had not lost an eye, had not lost a hand, or did not walk with a limp. 306 of those 318 bore the scars of torture for their Christian faith. That's something like 98% of the church leaders. You see, the Christian faith is not simply an affirmation of abstract intellectual ideas. It is a wrestle and a struggle. It is a transformative and often painful journey. It's the experience of both blessing and woundedness at the same time. Let's close with a passage from Paul. Um, I've been using a number of different metaphors to describe what the life of faith looks like. One of the metaphors is it looks like a wrestling match. Okay? Another metaphor is that it looks like a journey. The third metaphor that Paul gives us is that it looks like a race. Okay. And my prayer for you, my hope for us, is that whatever struggles, trials, challenges come your way, come our way, we will be able to claim Paul's words in 2 Timothy as our own. If we go to the final slide. So this is my prayer for us this morning. For you... Keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry, whatever God has called you to. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. Interesting language, given what we talk about wrestling. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. May these be our words and prayer.